In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us and now. Our Lady, cause of our joy, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Good morning, everyone. When you arrive on Friday, Sunday seems very far away. And now here we are. Hopefully, having taken advantage of the time that God has been speaking to us, maybe having gone a step further and had a chance to make some resolutions as to what we will do with what God has said to us during these days of prayer and reflection. And if nothing else, renewed and strengthened in our faith to return from wherever it is that we came in order to be more deliberate and intentional in living out our faith. To end with prayer in one sense seems kind of anticlimactic. This should rather be kind of like a a pep talk before the big game of the season to send you on your way with energy and enthusiasm. Um, But to end with prayer also, although it may be anticlimactic, really is the best place to end because it also is a beginning to talk about what it is that will sustain you, the fruit that you can take away in addition to the particular things that God has said to you in the time that you have been here. Or maybe you haven't heard the voice of God in the way that you anticipated. and You may be wondering what was the purpose of all this or Why was I here? Or was it really very valuable to me? God speaks to us, we know, in a variety of different ways, through a variety of different realities. And so, at times, it may be a slow burn, the words that God wants to offer to us to give us encouragement, strength, and direction. But I can guarantee you that regardless of what you may feel about what has happened to you or the knowledge that you have or don't have about God's presence in your life, something has happened to you, because God never wastes our time. God always is working on us, ways that are subtle, maybe ways that aren't so subtle. And the beautiful thing about prayer is it becomes then the means by which we can continue the lines of communication with God, whether it is then continuing the good work that has gone on here, the beginnings that maybe have been jump-started, or just continuing that which God has already done for you, with you, through you, wherever it is you may find yourself. Because I find my own, in my own personal life, in my own interactions with my faithful, and when I talk to people for whom I do spiritual direction, I come back again and again to the necessity of prayer. In my own life, when I'm praying, not things are perfect. But I also can tell when I'm not praying as I should, or I am not praying at all because I allow the busyness of my life to intrude and interfere, what happens to everything else around me. And it's not as if you could look at my life and see it falling apart. It's not that dramatic. But it's an interior disposition where being charitable, being patient, being compassionate becomes more difficult. To be a man of fervent hope and constancy Uh, to be a truth-teller in the best sense of that word and that reality, it becomes difficult to do that. Doubts, fears, anxieties more easily creep into my life. And again, it would be disingenuous of me to suggest that prayer fixes everything. 
It's not its purpose necessarily to fix things, although God obviously can, in prayer, fix us, fix situations, respond to our intercessions, our, respond to our petitions. But for us personally, prayer is that opportunity to listen more deliberately, intentionally to what God wants us to do. After all, we began looking at the life of St. Joseph, wanting to emulate the life of St. Joseph. And so how does one become a righteous man? Not only through the deeds that he does that reflect his interior life, but an interior life that is attuned to God. So when God does speak to me, I am able to actually hear him. I am actually able to respond to him. One of my favorite passages from the Old Testament is the prophet Elijah. After having done battle with the prophets of Baal, he finds himself threatened by Jezebel and he runs into the hills thinking that he did the right thing. Because you know how that passage ends when he defeats the prophets of Baal. And I never figured out why they did this because it says they willingly lined up to have their throats slit. I guess that was what it was like in the old days. If you won, you died or you got to kill, your, to kill the one that you uh, had authority and power over. Uh, but as Bishop Barron has reflected on that, he says that really wasn't his place. That God's intention in showing his power and authority to the prophets was in order to eventually convert them. And of course, if you're dead, you can't really be converted. So Elijah's running away. He's gone to a cave. He's waiting for God to come to him to kind of explain what's going on here. I thought I did what I was supposed to do. I thought I was doing the right thing. And now I find myself kind of uh, under this menace that's after me. And so uh, as the story unfolds, the kind of traditional theophanies of God, God in the torrent, God in the thunder, God in the fire. And in those, God's voice is not there. Elijah's waiting, standing at the face of the cave. And then the passage that means a great deal to me, he heard the voice of the Lord in the whispering of the wind. When I was a novice, it was particularly significant for me because I had a hard time praying. And when you're surrounded with other guys who are as earnest as you are, maybe even more so, guys who are a little bit older, I was the youngest guy in my class, uh, guys who seemingly were more experienced in prayer, I was always kind of anxious. I wasn't doing it right. I was embarrassed to talk about my prayer life because I didn't really think I had one. I struggled so much to hear God's voice. But then I took comfort from the fact that sometimes God isn't screaming at me. So sometimes it is hard to hear him, which means I also needed to train myself to be still, to be quiet, to be more attentive, not only to God coming in thunder or in torrent of rain or fire, but also God who comes in the whispering of the wind. And what prayer does, it primes me, prepares me, and opens me to all the ways that God might choose to speak to me. So these reflections aren't going to necessarily be earth-shattering. You are men of prayer by virtue of the fact that you have been here, whether it's the first time or many times that you've come to the retreat itself. You've come to this great place of prayer. But this is meant in order to then, in reflecting on what prayer is and what we kind of should be looking for, if you will, uh, as benchmarks in helping us grow in prayer giving us something concrete upon which we can hang our hats, if you will, as we go forward. As I always say at the end of the retreat, the world that you left continued to go on. The problems that maybe you were confronting, the difficulties in family or relationship, maybe some things in your own life with which you were struggling that you were able to leave at home, they're still there when you get back. They're going to still need your attention. It isn't necessarily as if they were fixed here while you were away. But what has changed 
hopefully, is how you respond to them, how you can respond to them, good and bad, whatever they might be, maybe taking greater advantage of the joys and the blessings that God has right in front of you, family, friends, children, grandchildren, your spouses, whatever it might be, but also those difficulties as well. What has changed is you, and more importantly, the confidence that you have in God to hear Him, to listen to Him, and then to live out the relationship into which He's called you. And so we talk about prayer simply as a conversation, a dialogue. That same dynamic we use to talk about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They talk to each other. And the nature of the conversation is such that it brings forth life. So powerful is their conversation. When we talk to God, prayer, we communicate the surgings of our hearts to God. Sometimes prayer is so powerful that it's not just the words issuing forth from our mouths, it's the things that come from the very depth of our being. I always find it interesting, one of the things I encourage my couples in marriage prep is to spend time praying together. And initially it's kind of always a little bit, of sh- a little bit shocked because, well, prayer is private, which I always follow up, well, do you have a sexual relationship, which of course they shouldn't, but they usually admit that they do. I said, so you're comfortable having sex with each other, but you're not comfortable praying with each other. We've got to work on that, because if you can exchange your bodies so willingly and freely, there also should be an ability more deeply to exchange what's in your souls. So they pray. Inevitably, they come back and they tell me that they have learned so much about each other in those times of prayer, because there is a, another layer of nakedness, if you will, beyond the nakedness of their bodies, or even the vulnerability that they expressed in order to fall in love and then eventually commit themselves to becoming husband and wife. Because there are times when we pray that we even ourselves aren't aware of what's in our hearts, those things with which we struggle. And this one place, this one person to whom we can take everything becomes the occasion and the opportunity to let those surgings of my heart truly come out. Prayer is also a raising up of my mind and my heart to God. It is a a giving up of my whole self, complete and total, over to the Lord. It is a contemplation of the mysteries of God. And again, as I described, mystery is not the unknown. Mystery is that wellspring to which we return again and again that will never be empty. His mercy, His love, His compassion, his, his guidance and direction in our lives, those are things that will never end. And so no matter how many times I might reject God, no matter how many times I might fall into sin, no matter how many times I might be a subtly off course, God will always be there. In part, because that is who he is, but more importantly, because that's where he wants to be, waiting for us. There is that beautiful image in the story of the prodigal son, there, the whole parable is a, it's just a beautiful unfolding of mercy and compassion. But the line that's included where Luke says that the father spies the son a long distance away, giving the impression that he was always standing there, looking into the horizon, waiting for him to come day after day after day after day, not knowing what day he will actually show up, and in truth, not knowing if he was ever going to show up. After all, he wanted his inheritance before it was rightly his. He took it and he left. And so there was not necessarily any expectation on the part of the father that his son was actually going to come back. But because he was a loving, compassionate, and as we discover, merciful father, he had no other choice but to wait and be present Uh, always on guard for his son to return. That's how it is with our Heavenly Father. He's always there waiting for us to come back. 
Our brother, our Lord and Savior, is there waiting for us to return to him, whether it be in Eucharistic adoration, the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, and in our own prayer. The beauty of praying also, brothers, is that it's a very act of faith itself. Do I believe in God is a fair question. A question I actually ask myself, especially when I look at my sinful actions, my sinful dispositions. Do I actually believe in the things that I profess? But when I pray, that's precisely what I'm doing. It's an act of confidence in God, that there's something larger than myself. And again, as I have grown older and found myself recommending prayer more and more to people and promising to them that I will pray for them, I've had to then be more conscious and deliberate. In the past, I figured it was something that I was supposed to say. And of course, again, when I was a young novice and a young Jesuit, I often felt that offering prayers to people really didn't seem satisfactory. My job was to fix people's problems. That's why they came to me. Now, mind you, I was all of 20, 21, 22. I had no experience in fixing anybody's problems, but I thought I could. I was a religious after all, and I was a Jesuit after all. I was the smartest of religious, so I would be able to do this and fix this. And how often it became clear to me that I was incapable, both personally, uh, but there were problems simply that were beyond me, that beyond anybody, that only God can fix. But even then, even when I was newly ordained, let me see what I can do. And now I'm very cognizant of how very little actually I can do. And the best thing I can do is to say, I will pray, which means that I need to actually do that, which means in that act of praying for others, I'm manifesting my faith in God to hear these prayers, to respond according to his providence, not to give me what I want, but to answer the prayer as he knows it ought to be answered. So I'm in conversation with God. I'm allowing my heart to surge toward God. I'm turning my mind and my heart to God, allowing these urgings to truly come forth, and I'm responding to the Lord in faith. And the beautiful thing about prayer with God is that it bespeaks a, a covenantal relationship. Of course, the covenant is most perfectly entered into by the mystery of the most holy sacrifice of the Mass. And one of the things we often forget about the reality of sacrifice, this would be true both, obviously, in a Christian context, but even outside of a Christian context, the nature of sacrifice itself is that the greater the sacrifice made, not only on the part of the one making the sacrifice, but then the one who receives the sacrifice binds himself through the sacrifice being received. It makes sense instinctively why ancient cultures understood, as we might find it horrific, but still there is something that is logical to the blood sacrifice, to the virginal sacrifice, to the sacrifice of the flesh. What greater gift can I return to the gods than life itself in order to bind them to us? But that's precisely what we enter into each time we celebrate the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the blood sacrifice, the sacrifice of the body, the sacrifice of life itself, except we are spared from having to choose someone to do that. Instead, the Father sent the Son to be the perfect living sacrifice, and in accepting the sacrifice of the Son, He enters into a bond with us that bespeaks the gift that we return each time we celebrate Holy Mass. And so this covenantal relationship in which we find ourselves, on our part certainly clinging to God, but on God's part desiring and choosing and wanting to be with each of us. We in prayer 
give ourselves over to him. But in that same conversation, he desires and wants to give himself over to us. He commits himself to us. He doesn't have to do that, but that is precisely what he does, what he wants us to do. And in this covenantal relationship, prayer then is more than just kind of a manipulating the direction of my life or the direction of the world. God, we should go this way or that way or this way. No, I ask God for help. I ask God to intercede. But because it's a covenant, I also trust God and how it is that he will respond and what it is that he will do for me and for us. Of course, the one who teaches us to perfectly pray, of course, is our Lord and Savior, who is in a constant posture of conversation with the Father, finding himself running away from the crowds in order that he can spend time in prayer. It was communion for him with the one who had sent him, the one with whom he shares everything, the one with whom he chose or to whom he chose to be obedient. But the beauty of Christ in the flesh is that he reveals to us in the flesh how it is that we too can pray. Prayers that he himself learned in the context of his holy family. Prayers that come to him by an outpouring of that same spirit that led him into the desert, that same spirit that appeared to him at his own baptism. Constantly asking the Lord not only to guide him, but to bless and to sustain us. And of course, in John's gospel, the Lord makes very clear that we're never going to be alone. Even as he goes before us to prepare a place for us, he is sending the Spirit upon us. That Spirit who will continue to teach, sanctify, hold us together. That Spirit that will also continue to enliven us and allow us to continue to reach conversation, to reach relationship with him. Of course, the Lord, in teaching us how to pray not only gives us the dispositions, but the words to pray as well. The Our Father, which we pray at every Mass, every time we pray the Rosary. Uh, it begins and ends oftentimes our times of fellowship and prayer as Catholic men, as Catholic people. So significant is the Our Father that it's been referred to as the Little Catechism because everything about who we are and what it is that we believe is contained in that tiny prayer. But to be able to call God Our Father, and the beauty of the relationship that's revealed by Christ the Son is not something that we could have ever come to on our own. It may be something that we wished and something that we desired, but to know that it actually is true, that we aren't just creatures, that we are beloved sons to a Father who cares for us, who's standing, waiting day after day, moment after moment, for us to reach out to Him over and over and over again. There's a watchfulness and attentiveness when the Lord teaches us to pray. That should then instill in us the same confidence that the Lord himself had in his own relationship. After all, the Lord's baptism, which we celebrate today, is received in order to give full meaning, power, and import to the waters that baptize each of us. So that in that act of baptism that we all have received, we truly become adopted children through our Lord in relationship with our Father. And again, because as I said earlier, sacraments do something, this filial adoption that Paul talks about uh, throughout some of his early writings, his early letters, that actually happens. 
This isn't just kind of a fanciful desire. Gee, I would love to be adopted by God. That's precisely what happens. You are God's son. Deserving or not, it doesn't matter. You are. And God welcomes you. God wants you with him. That's something we always need to remember. I remember giving a retreat to a group of Sarans uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, many, many years ago, talking about God's love for us. And this gentleman says to me, confesses to me, and I don't know if he had never heard it, or if maybe he was just hearing it for the first time in a particular way, but with very uh, uh, profound sadness, but also some tears of joy, realizing that God loved him. I think he knew about God's love, kind of as a theological construct. God loves me like he loves everybody else. That is a true statement. But God also loves each of us uniquely and particularly. And especially in those moments where we don't feel that we are deserving of that love is precisely when we need to hold fast to it. Those moments where I might be inclined because of my sin to to move away from God, to turn away because I know I'm unworthy. So how can I ask my beloved, whom I've offended so egregiously by my sins, to invite me back into relationship with me? And he's on the other side saying, I want you to come back precisely at this moment. Don't walk away. It's the worst time to go. The best time to stay. When I feel that I might be the furthest from God is that moment where I'm primed to allow God to pick me up, turn me back around, and bring me more closely to him. And so when the Lord teaches us to pray, not only, again, through the humility and the confidence and the consistency with which he himself prayed, but then also to give us the words that we needed in order to speak to God, he opens up for us the fullness of, of what it is that he wants to bring. God comes in the flesh not only to expiate sin and to reconcile us, but then to draw us into the fullness of the relationship that, it, that is revealed. Theologians argued, had Adam and Eve not sinned, would we still have been in need of the revelation of our Lord? And I would believe, I think anyway, that the answer would be yes. Because we needed God to tell us more about the relationship into which he has invited us, first through creation and then through covenant. We could never have come to this without him. And so in some way, we needed to understand who, are, who we are, whose we are, and our authentic and true dignity. And who better to reveal that we are God's children than God's beloved son himself. St. John Chrysostom, the great preacher from the what, fourth, fifth centuries, I guess. Golden mouth, they called him because of the power of his preaching, uh, gave a beautiful homily on the reality of prayer. He describes prayer as that which unites us to God as his companions. And through this companionship, illuminates not only our eyes to see, but our hearts to hear, giving us the light we need to contemplate God who illuminates our souls. But then ever practical, he says prayer also needs to be deliberate and it needs to be earnest. If I'm praying in fits and starts, each time I go back to prayer, it's as if I'm beginning again and not really building on that which has come before. The thing is, God doesn't mind. But think about all of the time we're wasting and losing by walking away from the Lord and then coming back again, again, again and again. Just stay. Be deliberate. Be intentional. 
You may not always pray as much as you would want or maybe pray as well as you would like, but it's important that you pray every single day. It's intentional. I'm making an effort. Sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes it's the rosary in my car. Sometimes it's an hour before the Blessed Sacrament. Is that better than most? Yeah, I would love to have an hour every day. I'd love to have several hours every day, but we're not contemplatives. We're men in the world. We have things to do. God understands, respects, and accepts that. But as busy as we are, we need to treat prayer like food and like breathing. I don't stop breathing because my life is busy. I don't stop eating because my life is busy. As a matter of fact, the busier I am, the more I need to breathe, the more I need to eat, the more I need to pray. And so this companionship into which we are invited in prayer also needs to be something concrete, not accidental, not an afterthought, not tertiary or down the line of the things that I accomplish in the course of a day. He also, St. John says, that prayer is this link between God and man. It comes in prayer in my soul, allowing me to marvel at the ways that God embraces me, the way that God holds me tight. Not only then do I go to God to ask him for things, to seek his advice, his counsel, his direction, I also go to God to simply be with him. It's the best of relationships. And isn't the the quality of our friendships often marked by the ability to simply be in each other's presence? Not do or say anything, to simply be with each other. Now, in general, modern man has a hard time with just simply being, the stillness that's required. And as men, there is a certain degree of activeness to us that makes that, in a sense, even more difficult. But it's not an impossibility. My best friend, a layman who lives very close to me, one of the things that we have noticed and we've talked about in the nature of our friendship is that how often we get together now and we don't necessarily have anything to talk about. Now, the question is, why are you guys just sitting there in silence? That seems to be a waste of time. What are you doing? We're forging the friendship. There's a bond that's there of support. If I need to talk, I will talk. If he needs to talk, he will talk. But we don't have to fill up the silence with anything. We can enjoy the moments, not just the moment. Enjoy the moments, and actually enjoy them in such a way that they're not things that come sporadically, but those moments that we can actually extend and make even longer and longer. And such is the reality of prayer. One of the things about it that's exciting about prayer is that when we find ourselves uh, having success in prayer, uh, both, if you will, experientially, emotionally, but also in terms of our consistency, it continues to spur us on. There's an excitement that infects us, and we want to continue to pray. But at times that can also work against us, because then when that might dissipate, when things might change in my life, all of a sudden those moments that seemed for a while to be extensive and intense, they simply disappear. I don't feel God in the way that I used to. It doesn't mean that God isn't there. It just means that in some ways things have changed. But if we're deliberate and intentional, if we're constant in it, we continue to stay in the relationship. St. John finally concludes that the beautiful thing about prayer is that it provides an opportunity for us, as he says, in prayer, to paint the house of our souls with modesty and lowliness, to adorn it with good works, and to embellish it assiduously, he says, with faith and generosity. Prayer involves virtue. It involves modesty, humility, justice. But prayer always leads to good works. 
whether it's the generosity of praying for others or concrete acts of good works that we put into practice that are a reflection of what's happening to us interiorly. My prayer moves me to do more and to be more. So some final thoughts as we take leave of each other, specifically related to prayer, but in general, good thoughts for us at the end of a retreat as we seek to grow more in our spiritual journey. Prayer requires what Ignatius of Loyola spoke often about as a purity of intention. It's good to investigate why you're doing what you're doing, to make sure that you're constantly motivated for the right reasons. I don't just go to prayer to get something from God. Not that you can't ask him for things, but that shouldn't be the only time you stand on God's doorstep, hat in hand, begging for this, that, or the other thing. Doesn't mean that God won't give it to you, so you're also not praying in order to kind of store up a whole bunch of grace over here so that when it comes time, you can go to God and say, give me what's mine. That's not the other side either. So when we purify our intentions, we're making sure that my first motivation as we spoke about in terms of worship, is to be in relationship with the one who is worthy to be in relationship with, to be in love with the one who is love himself. That's good enough. If that's as far as I got, that's okay. If there were no gifts bestowed upon me, that would be all right because the greatest gift is the very nature of the relationship itself. And so these surgings of my heart, these uh, acts of desire of communication, this covenant into which I'm entering, it's all valuable because of the one who's on the other end of the conversation, the other end of the covenant. And so I want to make sure that I'm going for the right reasons. Because the more pure my intention is, the more open I am to allow him to do with me what it is that he wants to do. Prayer also requires confidence in God. We spoke about that yesterday at Holy Mass. We need to foster that strengthen, that trust, and that confidence in the Lord. That when I ask, He will indeed bestow upon me, not what I want necessarily in the way that I expressed it, but He will always give me what it is that I need. And again, that purity of intention that allows me to open up my heart more completely to God will, be able, will assist me in seeing when God does indeed answer the prayer as He indeed sees fit not then making me restless or angry or frustrated or embittered that I asked God for help and he didn't give it to me. Well, I probably asked God for help in a particular way because that's how I wanted to receive it. God knows best, knows what I need, and so that's how he gave it to me. Meanwhile, I'm complaining because I didn't get what I wanted in the manner in which I wanted, and God is over here going, I gave you what you needed. What more do you actually want? Well, I want it the way I want it. You know that about me, of course. But there he is saying, I've provided for you. And so if I can open myself up to him, I can be confident in him, trusting in him. And of course, we've touched on this throughout, but of course, the importance of the virtue of humility. I recommend the litany of humility every single time I speak. How many of you are, are familiar with the litany of humility? One, two, three, four. Sister, put your hand down. Okay, so go online. If you're not computer savvy, have somebody in your family, go online. Type in the Google search engine or whatever you use, Litany of Humility, and print it out and start praying it on a daily basis. I will warn you, if you do practice or pray this litany, you will indeed be humbled. And I've already made reference to Francis de Sales' great insight. The only way to grow in humility is to be humiliated. 
So if you're not prepared to be embarrassed or to be humiliated or to be mocked or to be ridiculed, then don't pray it. But if you're ready to move forward, this will be an integral part of helping you foster that virtue in your life. And the most beautiful thing about humility is that it is the foundation and the font from which all of the other virtues grow and come forth. The more humble I can be, as we've already talked, in the hands of God, the easier it is for God to dispose of me as he sees fit. So we take our leave of each other, and I encourage you to continue to pray for each other. Whether you know each other by name or not, simply praying for the men with whom I made retreat. You are in my prayers before, and you will continue to be in my prayers after, and I ask you to do the same for me. When you return home, return home certainly filled with joy, but also certainly filled with with realism. If it's your goal to pray seven hours tomorrow morning, I can guarantee you that's not going to happen. You got things to do. You have lives to lead. And in truth, you shouldn't be spending seven hours in prayer because you have things to do and lives to lead. But if you can go back and say tomorrow morning, I will be more conscious and deliberate of my time in prayer. I am going to make some time in the evening to examine my conscience before I go to sleep, give thanks to God for the blessings of this day, and resolve to live just a little bit better the day after and the day after. Slowly but surely, that which God has done for you here and now will continue to actually work on you. And go back to St. Joseph, who is your father as well, who is patron for us all, who is model for us specifically as men, to find our trust and our confidence in the Lord, to be silent, but to do. And in that silence that leads to activity, to truly listen to what it is that God is asking of us, then in humility, joy, confidence, putting it into practice in our daily lives. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.